guys. I think I think we're ready to get started here. Yeah, let's are, are you are you here, Brad? Yeah, I'm here. Hell yeah. Um, so Agit, we're gonna we're just gonna go. I think it's good to go around and kind of introduce you to everyone that's currently here. Uh, my name is Mewtwo. I'm the founder of the Base Space. Uh, we've been doing this space now for, I don't know, how long are we doing this space, Super High? We've probably been doing this space Probably now. like a couple months, two months, couple. maybe. Nah, we've been doing it. Yeah, maybe. I think, I think more, maybe like three, four, three, four months. It just I think time flies when you're having fun. <laughs> it just kind of started out as like a fun uh, thing with friends, and uh, now we've been able to really expand out and provide like an educational uh, platform and also a platform for net- networking for uh, just everyone in the in the crypto Twitter space. So we've had everyone from Bancor to WooTrade to Linkpool was recently on here, which was super cool. Um, if you're familiar with Chainlink, God, he's a big supporter um, of the space of the space as well. So we're really, really excited to have you on. Um, super High, you can go next. Maybe just give like a quick intro. Yeah, um, so I'm Super High or Link T, whatever one you want to call me. doesn't matter. Um, I'm the community manager at BaseSpace, so... Basically, what I focus on is reaching out to get projects on, like Aiken, um, uh, and other projects just like Bancor. Just kind of keep the spirits up in the community. Uh, Shit posting is part of that, you know, just posting memes and getting a collective uh, energy going, and um, basically just informing everybody that at the end of the day, we need to use this money for good and these investments for good and not for evil. And um, so that's kind of my underlying roles just keeping the positive vibes reaching out to protocols to bring on and kind of doing more on the the back end rather than the speaking uh chase if you want to go next yeah uh hey i can chase here um recent team member joined the base space really just kind of out there just being a part of the community and kind of like seeing the direction of where this is going um you know, helping build out a network of people coming together to kind of, like, learn and grow this industry was something that kind of, like, interests me. So uh, that's kind of, like, what gravitated me towards working and helping build this project. So a lot of my stuff is kind of, like, behind the scenes, just a team member helping bring on um, different projects such as yourself um, and really kind of just facilitating our, like, just kind of kickbacks that we have on the regular spaces. So just being a regular speaker and just kind of being around the community. That's about it for me. And last but not least, Connor, you want to Uh Yeah, what's up, everybody? Uh, I'm more or less someone who just stumbled upon base bases. I was following someone who was speaking one night, and then I really loved what the team was doing, reached out, offered help. Now I kind of, like, record and do, like, stuff for the YouTube channel on the side. Uh, but, yeah, I don't know, just kind of enjoying helping the community and mainly just, I don't know, benefiting from being able to join these every night and just learning like the rest of you guys uh but yeah i don't know i kind of work on the production community side if anyone uh has interest in that let me know hell yeah uh yeah we're all really really excited to have you on akid um first question we have for you is how'd you get into crypto yeah so um i originally got into crypto like i think many people you know, when I first bought Bitcoin and bought Ethereum, um, time is, you know, I, I don't quite remember. This is probably like six, I'd say six, seven years ago initially when I first bought Bitcoin. And I started kind of just thinking a little bit more into 
like, okay, what are blockchains and what do these things do? Um, I was really interested in, you know, blockchain as, as um, you know, mediums of exchange. So the ability to move value in a permissionless way was very, very intriguing because I'd spent quite a bit of my career or, you know, better part of the last, let's say, 12 years working in fintech in West Africa. And if anyone knows anything about Sub-Saharan Africa, it's the most expensive corridor in the world to move money into. And it's actually even more expensive to move money between countries. And there's some structural reasons for that, um, some regulatory reasons for that. Um, you know, and, and so that really appealed to me as a potential new financial rail that gives you know, people more independence in how they basically store their money and move their money you know, and being able to move value outside of, you know, the current financial system was really appealing because, you know, you know, growing up in Nigeria, you know, my dad was a banking, my dad was a banker for all his career. And, you know, I just thought, you know, it's, it's crazy how difficult it is for Africans to transact between themselves and actually globally, um, you know, and so that, that was something that just really was a natural point for me to gravitate towards and, I started doing a lot of research around, um, you know, you know, blockchains as payment platforms. You know, advised a few companies who are trying to build remittance platforms on blockchains, and so that was my initial foray into the space. Um, eventually, that kind of led me down, you know, you know, deeper into the rabbit hole. I got very interested in governance and how these protocols, you know, if they're going to scale over time, you know, how do you govern them, right? And how do you, particularly protocols that are not you know, just pure money like Bitcoin, but everything else, you know, how do you scale them? How do you manage them? How do they reach their full potential? Um, you know, and coming from a background in economics, you know, that also just appealed to me, you know, what's the difference between a firm and a, and a blockchain network and what can you do in blockchain networks that you can't do in traditional structures? And, and so what are the ramifications of that? And how do you actually build new governance systems that are scalable right, as these networks scale? So that kind of got me down another path. Um, and it was just spent a lot of time in the governance side of things. I joined Decred, which was, you know, I'd say maybe the first or second, you know, depending on who you ask, like governance protocol that was sort of built off of a Bitcoin architecture but with a view to have, you know, governance as a central theme right with the view that you want to build other things not just a store of value but these networks could do other things and can have multiple applications built on top of them and so that led me to decred spent a year and a half there which was up until last may um and you know took some time off decided to sort of got lucky i guess in terms of the timing you know DeFi summer was sort of starting off so all the projects i've neglected from 2018 that were beginning to launch mainnets, you know, there's just a lot of opportunity now to kind of go back and, you know, jump into the fray. And I think the timing was lucky, got back into some of my favorite projects in the space. And that eventually led me to Bombridge in the fall of last year. That's incredible, man. I'm super curious, like you touched earlier about, um, about the Africa, like the environment in Africa, um, can you talk a little bit more about, like, the difficulties with transacting down there, even just between, like, your peers? Sure. Um, so, I mean, 
So if you think about like how the current financial system in the world is, right, it's backed by the dollar. And if you think about the position Africa kind of has in the global financial market, you know, broadly speaking, Africa is, is, is used for extraction, right? So Africa has natural resources. These natural resources are priced primarily in U.S. dollars. And most infrastructure you see across Africa, Sub-Saharan Africa, even today, are really built to optimize for extraction, right? So whether it's oil and gas out of Nigeria, whether it's cobalt, copper out of Congo, right? You, you generally see these economies as dependent on exports of natural resources, right? And those markets are determined ultimately by the U.S. dollar, which is how they're priced globally, right? So the dollar, you know, dominant financial system has a lot of influence, not only in how these assets are valued, but what countries get paid, right? So that's the first thing. And so by default, these financial systems are designed to cater primarily to corporations, and entities that facilitate the extraction of that value, which is why if you look at banking in Sub-Saharan Africa today, it's still very much, you know, you know, people use the term that Africans are underbanked, right? Most Sub-Saharan Africa, 80% of Sub-Saharan Africa does not have a bank account, right? And, and some of that is because the system wasn't really designed to cater to that use case of building out these economies. It was designed to cater to extracting value out of these countries. So fundamentally, right, the rule set that determine how the financial system in Africa works is, is derived externally, right, from interests that have, right, a view that they want to sort of get value for as little as possible. And they're not necessarily interested in building infrastructure, right, or building strong civil institutions, right? So if you, if you, even, if you look at even some of the functions of global financial institutions like the IMF or the World Bank, look at the projects that facilitate, look at the policies they've pushed through over the last 30, 40 years. You know, every country in sub-Saharan Africa that's ever taken a loan from a national monetary fund is worse off today than it was 30 years ago financially. And, you know, you could argue that, okay, there's some inherent problems in African countries, but on the other side, if you're trying something and it doesn't work, then you try something else. And if you look at fundamentally how most Western countries developed, they developed under strong constitutional and civil institutions, right? So if, I, if I'm American and I want to go build democracy in Africa, for example, then follow the playbook America followed, go build strong civil institutions. But that's not been what's, you know, that's not happened. So there's a different game being played. So that fundamentally is, I think, maybe a long story, but it's a little bit of a backdrop of, then how everything else has derived from that. And so if the intent is to extract value from countries, then you're not really interested in building intra-Africa trade. You're not interested in these economies basically funding each other, which is what cross-border trade does, right? One country funds another, you buy things from someone else, right? Most of the goods and services that are actually non-raw materials that trade in Africa are imported, right? So you'll, you'll create this dependency where many of these countries now have to import things from the West in exchange for their raw materials. And anyone who understands business realizes that raw materials are not where you get most of the value. It's in all the processing that gets you to a finished product. That's where you get the higher margin value. 
So it's a, it's a little bit of a, of a rigged game. And, you know, growing up in Nigeria under these circumstances and being able to see, like, in some ways, the financial system firsthand, I think, I suppose that sort of, uh, I suppose that kind of laid sort of the groundwork unconsciously for, I think, why I gravitated very quickly into crypto, because it really looked to me like, well, that's the ultimate solution, right? Because if you can rely on peer-to-peer networks, if you can rely on, a more fair and accessible marketplace, then that's the basis through which a fair financial system can be built in the first place. So if you think about things from first principles, like fix the fundamentals and then build from there. And I mean, I think that's just, you know, how, I guess that's, that's my short answer to that. That's, uh, that's extremely insightful. Thank you for sharing that. Um, extrapolating that out a little bit, uh, you know, I think, the passion obviously brought you to where you are with Barnbridge, but can you also kind of like discuss how from like a, a professional perspective, like how that kind of played out where you actually were able to make that like first step into the blockchain industry? Yeah, I mean, so, you know, most of my career I spent in management consulting and structured finance. So you know, I think I spent a total of uh, five years between Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac doing structured finance on, you know, mortgage-backed securities, building structured products. Um, and then, you know, the bigger part of my career I spent, you know, doing management consulting primarily to um, federal reg agencies and the financial side of things, right? So, um, you know, FDIC, Treasury, um um, the IRS, right? So a lot of those financial reg agencies, a little bit of a stint, um, yeah, at Homeland Security. But anyway, you know, I, I got into consulting originally because I wanted to know how to run businesses, right? What does it take to actually run a business? What are the, right, the various moving parts? Because my long-term view was always I want to do something on my own at some point. So along the way, I actually got the chance to invest in a mobile payments company in Sierra Leone called Splash Mobile Money. This was about 12, I'd say 12 years ago. That's run by a friend of mine. And that kind of got me into fintech in West Africa, right? So I saw that as almost kind of like a, like a slow way to sort of, you know, not quit my day job, but get involved in an area that I thought was interesting. And so I got a, a seat up, you know, seat at the board of Splash and essentially vicariously like ran the company through this buddy of mine who relocated there and we tried to build this whole payments company together. Um, and over time, that just sort of slowly evolved into advising other fintech companies, right? So if you look at like, you know, Africa, I'd say like seven years ago, or maybe a little bit longer, but, you know, mobile payments took off in, in Kenya with M-Pesa. And then effectively, you know, most people make payments in Kenya with their mobile phones. Um, so it, it was widely successful for a number of reasons that I don't think we have a time to go into, but it was widely successful. And that then sort of proliferated across Africa where other countries are looking for ways to implement this mobile money, mobile-based system, right? The prerequisite for that obviously was having mobile telecom coming into Africa and being a big revolution, right? Because, you know, when I, when I was growing up in Nigeria, like having a phone was a luxury, right? Through the late eighties, like, it was, you know, I think there were maybe 500,000 phone lines for 150 million people. And and so when cell phones came, even though they're really expensive, right, over time, competition comes in, prices go down, 
right? So it became this basically huge like value creative add to economies because now people could communicate and you know save time, save costs of travel, all sorts of things. And on the back of that, the natural thing was then, you know, okay, how do we use these platforms to exchange value and and make money? So I'm kind of in the middle of this as this thing was sort of taking off because Splash was probably Splash was actually the first um, the, the first mobile payments company that was what we call like MNO ag- agnostic. So it sat on all the telcos in the country. So it was all interoperable. So it didn't matter what cell phone you had, you could sit on this interoperable payment system. And in many other countries, it didn't quite evolve that way. It was sort of like, you know, each of the mobile payment players was doing their own thing. And so to, to a large extent, like it gave us the ability to kind of innovate in a little bit of a different way where, you know, the, the telcos did not see Splash as a threat because it was independent and they saw it more as like, all right, here's a way we can extend and create a new, you know, a, a new source of income. And so Splash was able to develop a little bit differently than I think most mobile payment companies and solve other kinds of problems. And I think on the back of that and some of the innovation that we, that came through that, there's a lot of attention from just others who were, you know, you know, building fintechs and other things. And being from Nigeria, like, you know, it was easy to kind of, just sort of organically build a following. And so that's kind of how I got into FinTech. And then, which kind of led me to crypto because one of the things we're seeing at Splash and Sierra Leone was, I mean, people kind of understand how remittances work for diaspora groups. Like you have the large players, like, you know, um, um, like the, the big, large, you know, payment companies historically. But you have a lot of many, many small players that kind of follow diasporas, right? So, for example, in the U.S., because, you know, because um, remittances are basically, you know, managed on a state-by-state level, you have to get a license in every state, you know, there'll be a remittance company in Minnesota, for example, for, like, the Ethiopians there or the Somalis there because there are large communities there. And they might have a license only in Minnesota, right? And they're independent and they're looking for distribution. Okay, how do I connect with... Right, distribution on the ground to get money. I can get money across the world into the country, but how do I get local distribution? And the same thing happened with us in Sierra Leone, where as we started building out the network, we now had all these independent players from out the world saying, all right, you guys have distribution. How do we plug in? And we started learning some of the friction and challenges that these guys were facing, having to sort of go through this very onerous system to be able to actually you know, set up these companies and we just thought it made no sense and it was extremely broken. And that kind of started getting me curious about, wait, there's this new blockchain thing. Like I bought Bitcoin and ETH, but, you know, ETH is supposed to do a lot more things. Like I need to kind of dig deeper and figure out, like, is there a new financial system we can build on the back of that? Um, yeah, so, I mean, I'll stop there. But that's kind of how that kind of story um, started. That's that's extremely fascinating. Um so kind of going off that, we have, a, we have a lot of people in our community who are um, actively seeking jobs in the industry or that, or they're maybe they're actually preparing, like in the future, they envision themselves working in the industry. Some are focusing on uh, the development side. I'm sure some will kind of be on the business side of things. I know at Barnbridge, you're, you're on the operations team and you kind of specifically focus on strategy and partnerships. Could you just kind of like touch on like what it looks like day to day in your actual role in this industry? 
Yeah, so the one thing, so just so before I go too far, I want to preface this too. So as of yesterday, I was on the operations team. I'm no longer on the operations team at Barnbridge. I've, I've gone back into the Dow, so to speak, which is where I came from. And so I'm going to be focused going forward on actually building out and supporting the build-out of structures within the DAO as opposed to being on the core team. I just want to kind of put that out there. Um, but yes, that question is still very relevant because as of yesterday, I was still in that role, in that capacity. And day-to-day, and -day, so day-to-day, -day, it's sort of like, the best way to kind of think about it is, it's like you said, you're kind of trying to brace two worlds, right? So part of the thesis around Barnbridge is that there's this traditional, there are all these traditional pools of capital that, are either looking to come into the system or don't know yet that they're going to be using DeFi down the road, right? And the appeal is to build platforms and protocols and, and products that that user would want to subscribe to, um, while at the same time also building products that, you know, DeFi natives also value and can use. Um, and so when you think about what it takes to do that, at least in my role, it's sort of like being a utility player where you have to be able to really understand DeFi um, quite deeply, right? And understand why, for example, right, subscribing to Chainlink price feeds and Chainlink Oracle feeds makes more sense than spinning up your own Oracle. Like you need to understand that really intimately and why you're going to pay, in some cases, right, a premium to access those feeds right versus just doing something on your own right you need to understand um you know all the antecedents in, in DeFi, right ave compound uniswap like all the protocols that have had product market fit that have had some success and how you can leverage them in your strategy right so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel and perhaps you can build on top of them which now requires you to be able to engage these platforms in, in a level at which, you know, you're credible, right? They understand, you understand the same language. You can kind of sell them on why, right? What's in it for them, right? So why, why provide resources to integrate with Barnbridge? What are you guys doing that is interesting, attractive, that adds value to us as a network relative to the dozens of, of other protocols that are knocking down our doors and we're trying to prioritize against, right? So you have to be able to do that intimately, right? So on that side of my role, right, I spend most of my time in Discord channel and channels and Telegram groups, right? Pretty much like going, you know, my office space is going through dozens of those groups within a day and interacting with different groups at different times, right? And trying to coordinate across, you know, this whole space that is actually moving really, really fast at the same time. So you have to keep up with how fast it's moving. You have to keep up with the innovation that's happening because perhaps your next partner is the protocol that launched like four weeks ago and has done something really, really interesting, which you think is the ideal partner relative to the partner you were thinking about three weeks ago that was an ideal, right? So keeping abreast of that is can be complicated, but I think over time it narrows down because it's a very, very noisy space. And over time, you begin to learn what the signals are for like legitimate products, like what your viewpoint on the space is, what kinds of partners fit and align with your vision. Right? I don't think we spend enough time talking about vision and alignment around that. It's not just about the tech, but 
right? If you're going to think about long-term partnerships, you want to partner with protocols that are seeing the future the way you are, and you have that philosophical alignment, um, because I think that's really important. And then the other side of my job is then now on the traditional side where, you know, which is, I suppose, a little bit more natural based on my career, where you're interfacing with financial institutions, you're talking to, you know, all these groups that you think should understand, um, you know, I guess the low-hanging fruit of folks who are already in the space, right, who you need to convince us as to why they should be using and putting capital into, like, a, you know, senior tranche on smart yield on Bombridge, relatives are just sitting on compound on Aave like they've done, right, for the last year. So what what's the value add for me, right? So selling those people on that and then moving further up and actually now engaging others who are not even here yet because, you know, there's a, there's a long sales cycle, right? And part of your job is to build credibility with these groups, right? A lot of it is educating them more than anything else as to, what's really happening. And if they can see you as a credible partner, like, you know, many, many times I have calls with these, I've had calls with entities where it's about Barnbridge, but it really evolves into this just broader conversation on DeFi because they have all these questions and want to understand the space. And some people might think about that as a waste of time, but it isn't because what you're doing is building a trusted relationship with someone who potentially, when they're ready, might be deploying large sums of capital into your protocol. And because they see you as that credible resource, you built a relationship. And I think, you know, that one point is very, very important because if you really understand how traditional finance has worked, like what investment banking is, right, it's a relationship-based business first, right? You know, there, there are people that leave Wall Street banks to other banks and all their clients go with them because their clients will tell you, I have a banker, not a bank, right? So those trusts and relationships are very, very important. And oftentimes they take quite a bit of time to develop, especially when you're talking crypto and something that they don't really fully understand. Um, right. So that's the other side of things where, you know, you have to sort of be able to straddle both worlds and be credible to both. Right. And I think it's, I mean, that's the space I've played in. I think I'm, I'm relatively comfortable there and, but I think it's it's something that any protocols that are trying to think about building long term to attract you know traditional capital like they'll need to be able to interact with that space in a credible way, um, and yeah, yeah, that's uh, that's awesome. I think that's actually like a really good segue. Um, would you mind like diving in for the audience, like going into the Barnbridge protocol? and the purpose of the bond token for those who may be new to crypto space or possibly even like caring about Barnbridge for the first time tonight. Yeah. So, so Barnbridge is, so Barnbridge is at heart a governance protocol, right? So the bond token is a governance token and I'll kind of go into that, but fundamentally what Barnbridge, you know, the, the, the tagline or the, the top line is we're a tokenized risk protocol. And what that really means is that when you have, the ability to sort of program money, then you also have the ability to decouple all the variables that go into an asset. Right? So you look at a financial asset, right? There's a principal potentially lodged somewhere, right? There's a borrower, there's money moving back and forth in terms of interest payments. Someone's getting paid, someone is receiving, right? So there, and, and then there are certain things that affect the value of that asset, right? So in the traditional space, interest rates matter. 
right? The inflation rate matters. Um, there are all sorts of like figures, right? How fast is the economy growing? There are all sorts of exogenous things, like external things that affect the value of an asset at any point in time. And what you can do in DeFi is you can decouple all those variables and price them individually, right? So there are many things you can do where you can say, all right, if, you know, so for example, with Smart Yield, which is our first product, right? Smart Yield basically is built on top of, um, you know, primitives that already exist, right? So compound on Aave or anything, any yield asset or yield pool in, in, in DeFi that gives you a variable rate like smart yield can build on top of it and split that variable rate into two pots, right? A senior side, which is a fixed rate and a junior side, which is almost like a leveraged exposure to that variable underlying variable rate. And the way you do that is just math, right? You basically transfer the risk. You know, you design the pool and say, I'm transferring risk from the seniors to the juniors, right? And the juniors basically who sit on one side of the pool, like a seesaw, are basically like an insurance pool, right? They're getting a return, but they're ensuring that whatever rates the seniors have locked in at any given point in time, they will get paid, right? So we basically have the ability to now take what is a variable rate yielding asset and change the dynamics of how that asset actually looks, right? So we've decoupled this idea that something's a variable rate and we've basically transformed it into something else. And you can do that for many things, right? You can do that for volatility. You can do that for price exposure, right? So you can say, look, you can hold Bitcoin or Ethereum, or I want a 50% exposure to Bitcoin. So if Bitcoin goes up 50%, I can have an exposure that, you know, if Bitcoin goes up, I only can have a 50% exposure to it going up or down, right? You can program these things in an algorithmic, algorithmic ways and essentially just change the nature of how these assets actually work. So that's kind of like a long definition, but inherently, like Barnbridge is a protocol where we can basically design new kinds of financial assets um, programmatically that are very, very difficult to like essentially build in traditional markets. And because we could do that, you can essentially, you know, you can essentially like, you know, so, so well, you can essentially create products that are more exacting. What I mean by that is that lots of people who are sitting in Aave or compound pools today earning a variable yield, I would much rather like earn a fixed yield, right? But well, if variable is all I can have, well, I'll, I'll take it. And the reason why lots of people want fixed yields is you can plan better, right? I can get a fixed yield. I can create a structured product. I can change the risk dynamics. There are many things you can do when you just fix one variable, right? Okay, it's a fixed yield here. I know what it is. I can now plan and project out against that asset. Right. And, but if, if I told them, look, here's an asset now where I can create a, a, a fixed yield position for you, which is exactly what you want, then that party, all things being equal, should be willing to pay a premium for that because that's exactly what they want. Right. As opposed to, well, good enough variable rate. So the idea now becomes that you can actually programmatically now create structured products effectively that, that the customer really wants but it's a structured product that can also have a very liquid market where you can sell it into, which is, you know, in traditional finance markets, it's sort of like a continuum where you don't get it both ways, right? The more esoteric a financial product is, the harder it is to create a liquid market for it because it's non-fungible, right? It's something some guy wanted to build 
and perhaps like there are five people in the world that would ever want to buy it, right? In DeFi, because of the nature of how markets are, the way information is on chain, you can build these structured products and still create liquid markets for them because it's easier to get like discovery of these assets and products because they're on chain. And just because of that, like a lot of the factors that go into thinking about cost, that go into thinking about, you know, many, many things are just different. And so things that would be, you know, prohibitively expensive in the traditional finance market to do are actually possible in DeFi for a number of reasons. And, and so that's, that's basically what Barbara is trying to do. Think about like, how do we create products that we know and think these guys want to use, but is extremely expensive for them to do currently, or they can't even do it at all. And if you can solve those problems and create new financial innovation around that, then a lot of interesting things can happen. And, and that's basically at the heart of what we're trying to do at Bombridge. Yeah, that's super interesting, sticking on the, the smart yield product. So you, to summarize, if I'm understanding correctly, you have these senior tokens who basically get that guaranteed fixed return. They're not they're not the risky crowd, they're risk averse, and they want a guaranteed income. And those are NFTs, is that right? Yes, they're NFTs because they're non-fungible in that, you know, the value, the value you can lock into at any given point in time, and also the principle you're bringing in, like, is, is always going to be unique. So they're NFTs, they're not fungible, yeah. And on the flip side, you have your junior token holders who are maybe a little bit more willing to have a little bit more risk in the game to chase that higher percent yield. Yes. And those are fungible to where they're, that opens up secondary markets. Yeah, so the juniors are ERC-20. It's pretty much standard because it's basically like a shared pool where a junior has a fractional exposure to that pool. So they're ERC-20s, and yeah, so inherently, right, they're, they're a little more liquid. You can create, it's easier to make secondary markets for them because, right, up until uni version three, like everything is like ERC-20s, right? These markets are fairly well developed. So, you know, you can put them in the AMMs, right? It's, it's a little bit easier to kind of build markets against that. And a little bit more of a challenge to you know create markets for the NFTs. It's possible, but um, it's technically possible. It's, it's, it'll be a harder lift to get there, just because like not not no one's really doing it currently today. Yeah, and so like, what does that implementation look like in terms of you know if you integrate into Ave? Like, is it will it be noticeable on the like user facing side? Will they just kind of have like an option when they're adding liquidity? And your product will just be naturally integrated, or is it more of a back-end integration? And just you'll have separate pools. Yeah, so so you'll you'll access today, you'll access those products on Barnbridge DAP. Right? So if you if you log into you know app.barnbridge.com, um, you'll see a compound pool, an Ave pool, and a cream pool. Ave and Cream got recently launched, and then in the next few weeks you'll see an Ave Matic pool. Right. So you'll just be able to click on these pools, you'll be able to see like currently they're all stable coins, right? So you see all the stable coins you can get access to, USDC, DAI, right? Depending, you know, I think GUSD is going to be launched on Aave, right? So the idea is to have a diversity of stable coins and stable coin markets where, you know, you can kind of, if you have your favorite stable coin, you should be able to find over the long term a market on Barnbridge where you can access it, right? And, and so Barnbridge basically is integrated onto Aave at a smart contract level. Right, we're basically now, you know, building into these stablecoin pools, pulling them up essentially, 
tranching them into juniors and seniors, minting new tokens when people enter. And essentially, it's like a pass-through, right? Because all the origination in terms of that rate of return comes from the from the um, underlying protocols. And what we're doing is just changing the nature of what's possible in terms of re-architecting the products so that you now have a derivative where, hey, I can enter a fixed rate pool for up to a year. I can cert- set up the duration for as long as I want. Or I can watch the rates go up and down and decide when I want to enter. Right. So if you look at Compound on Aave and most of these money markets in crypto, they kind of follow these like leveraging and deleveraging cycles where, you know, as, as, as the market typically is going up and there's a demand for leverage, you'll see the rates on Compound on Aave begin to trickle up. Right. And they follow a cycle. So, for example, if I was holding a position on Compound or Aave today, like it's going up and down, up and down, up and down. But if I do my modeling and I say to myself, wait, all of a sudden, I can enter like a senior position on smart yield at a, on a naturally like high rate. So let's say we're at the top of this leveraging. Actually, when we launched on compound, when we first launched smart yield, you could have entered like a senior position. At some point you could have entered like a $5 million senior position at like a 12% rate of return and locked that in for a year. And the expected return of that 12% is much higher than you would get on compound over that same span as the rate kind of goes up and down, right? The expected return is probably around, this is just like, you know, speculative, like more around like maybe six or 7%. So the idea becomes then that, you know, after a few rounds of this, and a student, a student investor is like, wait, I'm just kind of waiting for that leverage up to happen just to be able to lock in a position on the senior side because I can now get a fixed rate at a much higher rate of return that's insured and backed by the juniors, like who will take more risk, right? And so that's kind of like the idea of how smart yield is. So over time, you know, the, the vision for that was that you should be able to come onto Barnbridge and enter any combination of senior and junior positions across the risk curve in DeFi, right? So starting with the blue chips compound on Aave, where we think is the largest markets, all the way down to like the highest risk protocols, right? So a cream is more high risk, high return than a compound on Aave. So the idea now is that a user now can come in and say, look, I can kind of build a portfolio at any given point in time made up of different types of risk variable assets, right? That I can get fixed positions into or variables, variable exposures into on the junior side and essentially be able to now have not just exposure that you can essentially design right, based on your own risk parameters, right? So that's kind of the start. But over the long term, the view is then you can actually hedge those positions actively over time. So like in traditional finance today, people that have large exposures to like equities or even fixing some income portfolios, like a lot of those managers are not like buying and selling their positions right, when the market is going like south, right? They're not gonna like unwind a $10 billion portfolio what you're going to do is buy a hedging, you know, hedge your risk if you think the market is going to tank, right? You buy options or you buy derivatives or insu- other forms of financial insurance. And so the long-term view for like smart yield is not just building out this whole pipeline of exposures you get into, but a next phase would then to be, all right, once you've built out this marketplace that people can kind of get all the exposures to, you also now have to provide them ways to hedge that exposure directly on the platform, right? To make the user experience you know, a lot easier. 
Now today they can do that themselves, right? By going into options protocols or like futures markets and doing all sorts of interesting things. But the long-term view is that having the ability to do that on a singular platform where you can see the whole industry, you can see the whole risk spectrum and you can build a portfolio. Like that's really the long-term vision for, for smart yield. Akin, can you, uh, can you touch on like the fee structure if there is any for, uh, the smart yields and how that works? Yeah. So when, so the fee structure is when you enter a position on the junior side on smart yield, because the ERC twenties, and you can essentially just take them anywhere. You can literally just take the token and potentially over the long term, like trade them or transfer them. Um, the juniors are charged, um, I think, 50 basis points in entering the pool. So 0.5%. Um, and the, the seniors, it's a little bit of a different construct where the seniors, you know, Barnbridge gets paid when the seniors unwind. So if I create a senior position today for six months, whatever the amount is, Bombridge takes a percentage of the profits, right? You get, so you get your principal back. And I, I believe it's, we set it up where Bombridge gets, I should know this better off head, but it's either 10% or 5% of, of the profits against the um, seniors. So like the seniors almost act more like a Wi-Fi V2 pool where we get paid when you get paid. And the juniors, like just based on the fact that they are C twenties and they're harder to kind of follow because once someone mints that they can take it anywhere. So, you know, we, we had to, we had to make the decision that, you know, the senior, the juniors get, you know, pay upfront, um, when they enter the pool. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. Um, Jason, do you have any more questions around the smart yield? Uh, no, actually, I was just going to say uh, this would be a good segue to talk about the other product. I'd be curious to learn about Smart Alpha. Um, did you did you have anything else you want to add? Or did anybody else have any questions on smart yield before we switch gears? I didn't. I think that's a this is a good segue to the to the smart yield to the smart alpha uh, product. Can you uh, can you talk to us a little bit about how like the smart alpha bonds work? Yeah. So smart alpha was, was sort of like actually the original like product that we were thinking of launching first, and some decisions made to kind of launch smart yield fast first. Um, the small alpha is a little bit different in that you know you'll be able to essentially take leveraged exposures to an underlying asset, right? So small alpha is not, is, is a, is a native primitive on Barnbridge. So we're not, it's not like something we're integrating onto like a third party platform, but it's basically a way for people to enter pools with ERC 20 assets, right? And essentially like create these leveraged exposures, right? Like, so I was saying before where, you can, you can say, look, I want, you know, 50% exposure to, to Bitcoin or to Ethereum, or I want, you know, maybe 150% leverage ex exposure. You can basically program within a singular pool. You can have all these people entering different, right, different price exposures to a certain asset. And together, right, they sit in a singular pool that allows them to basically construct these exposures. And you, you basically dynamically, like part of what you're trying to always do is have the pool kind of set in a certain ratio of balance, right? So if you're, if you're going to get it perfectly balanced, right, then you would have to have 
who's saying I want less than a one one to one exposure and everyone's saying I want to like above one exposure, right? If they cancel out, then all you have is singular price exposure. And all you've done is now you're giving up the price exposure that the whole pool wants. So in order to like, so ideally, right, you know, you can run into situations where, you know, let's say we're in a bull market and like DGENs are all like full throttle. I want like max exposure leverage up. That poses a problem, right? Because that pool could blow up if it's too heavily skewed, right? So dynamically, like we're now doing things like dynamic pricing, where if the pool is getting skewed towards like a certain side, you're creating a you're making it more expensive for people to enter, keep entering that leveraged end because you're sort of like getting it out of balance, right? So for example, if I now want like 150% exposure and the pool's already leaning that way, it's going to cost me a lot more, right, to enter that. And at some point it makes no sense, right? Because the cost of now minting that position is just too prohibitive. Like you're like, look, I'm going to basically spend too much entering that position for that exposure for what it's worth, right? So then maybe it seesaws back, right? So the idea is now to basically design a way for a shared pool of people to kind of manage or program their price exposure, but to kind of keep it within some sort of sensible bounds, right? And, and effectively what, what you're really doing is to some extent, it's not just a product where like people are able to now make those positions. It actually becomes, you know, at steady state, it could be like a market sentiment gauge, right? Because if the market at steady state is now telling you like en masse that they're trying, they think taking leverage or going long is the market sentiment, right? One way or the other, the market is telling you something. And if, 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 you know, if that is moving the other way and people are taking more conservative positions or, or saying, I want less price exposure, or I'm, I'm exiting the Bitcoin pool, I'm just going to stablecoin, like whatever it might be, like all those things are telling you something. So over the long term, right? So that's what smart alpha is. But smart alpha now creates the potential to create some sort of a sentiment gauge where you can even build derivatives against smart alpha, right? So if smart alpha on the market is going one way, right, the probably market participants that just want to know what that is. And maybe that's data and information that they can run through, right, their algos or their models that might tell them something or have a signal. So part of what we think is that the product itself is interesting there could be other ways that market participants use that information to want to potentially construct other kinds of products. So you can see like a smart alpha and like almost like an inverse smart alpha. Like I want to take the other side of where the market is, for example, like it's possible to build that kind of a product. So the, the view on that is that things, I, I mean, I think smart alpha is going to be a really, really interesting product, but the, the things and things we can learn from that and the potential derivatives that come from actually smart offer itself could be really interesting as well when you marry that against, you know, other sources of data and what they're telling you. So ultimately, right, you think about the domain of where that sits, it's, you know, a lot of sophisticated investors, that's how they work today. And they're looking for information, they're looking for data, and they're looking for markets where they can execute, right, against the ideas or where they think the market is going. And so Smart Alpha will be a really interesting product to see how, you know, users might want to use it, but also what kind of feedback we get in terms of 
well, if you could do this, can you do that, right? And, and so now beginning to engage with the marketplace on right, conversations that might come out of that in terms of way, you know, how they can inform product development going forward becomes really interesting too. So it becomes like a way to kind of convene, in my view, right, sophisticated users of all kinds around certain conversations on what other products we can develop beyond natively what Smart Alpha like does. No, that's, that's really, really cool. Um, and from my understanding, the token setup is a little different, right? You have the junior token, the senior token, but also the mezzanine token. Can you talk a little bit about how all three of those tokens play into the Smart Alpha product? Mm, no. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so... Secret. Yeah, I mean, yeah, no. And part of the reason for that is... I think we were pretty locked in in the current architecture of the smile for it, but it could shift Got between it. now and when we actually launch. And I think we're, we've sort of gotten into this point where, you know, I think we a lot of a lot has been disclosed around Smart Alpha, but I think we're, we're becoming less, more reticent to kind of share too much before we actually, you know, get products audited and put out specs right before launch. So that makes sense. Um, but, but I mean, but smart exposure is coming out before smart alpha. So, um, and so, so along the way in thinking about developing smart alpha, we happened upon a new, a different product that we thought was interesting and should be launched. And so smart exposure is the next product. Um, and so I could talk a little bit about that at a high level, but smart exposure is like simply just like, uh, it's sort of like being able to it's kind of like set protocol in a way where you can take two assets or two ERC-20s and you can create an exposure to both of them, right? So let's say, look, I want to hold Bitcoin and ETH and I want to hold them 50-50. You can enter a 50-50 Bitcoin ETH pool. And what the pool does algorithmically is like it keeps you within, right, within some, you know, I don't know, 2%, maybe 3% deviation that keeps you at that 50-50 balance, Right. So it's almost like a set it and forget it. And, you know, I think anyone, I mean, this is not proprietary, but anyone can do an analysis. And if you look at historical data of Bitcoin and Ethereum, um, you know, a 50 50, if you held 50, Bitcoin and Ethereum at a 50 50 balance, for example, within a certain threshold of deviation, the expected return is, is, will be higher than, you know, just holding one or the other. Right, because for some reason, like if if the if the price appreciation of either asset deviates, like let's say like ETH outperforms Bitcoin for like a certain period of time, um, there's there's some mean reversion that tends to happen where at some point you know e, you know Bitcoin flips and has like its own run and kind of you know catches up with ETH, and so you know we've done quite a bit of analysis that says. Having these smart exposure pools where you can enter a 50, 50, 70, 30, 80, 20, that we think that's a product that certain users in the marketplace will want to access um, as, because, because you can share them with the historical data that says that's actually like a better expected return and a better way to hold. But what smart exposure does is it, uh, it, it basically does all that rebalancing for you. So you don't have to worry about keeping your portfolio in balance because, you know, it could be, particularly with high gas prices today, it could be um, pretty, you know, 
not cost effective to be selling and buying to balance your your your, your exposure, but at steady state in a large pool, right? Imagine having like a BTC ETH pool that's two hundred million dollars. Like, I mean, rebalancing that, and even the thresholds to rebalance, like you know, we get lower over time. Over time, the need to rebalance will, will probably get shrink. Right, because you know, one person entering in with like you know twenty k or fifty k, hundred k doesn't really move the needle enough, right? And so, we think that there's a there's a space for the market for that. Like, it could be an interesting product. Um, it gives people a way to also structure their exposure, right? So there'll be different tranches, for lack of a better word, or different you know set ratios, and you'll be able to run simple analysis to tell you. You know, what's the best exposure you should have? And potentially, like, you know, if you think about it, that's the kind of analysis we should just be really providing. So the real value should be, look, we create the product. Sophisticated guys can kind of, you know, figure it out. But, like, we can do the analysis ourselves and publish information on an ongoing basis that says, at any given point in time, this is the right ratio to hold. And here's the data that kind of tells you, right, historically that's been the case. And when that changes... Right, you can you can have a, a change in sentiment. So perhaps it now becomes a way to actually inform the market that says, look, for people who want passive exposure, right, we have a much more cost-effective way to manage that balance. We can share intelligence that tells you at any given point in time what the right structure should be based on the favorite tokens you want access to. Right, you can do some. You can do also a correlation analysis that might tell you, well, you're better off you're better off not holding these two tokens. Like hold these two instead. Because these two are too highly correlated, and you don't really get any benefit from it. Like stuff like that, I think is where this gets really interesting. Where we can bridge the gap between TradFi and sophisticated users and the regular guy, right? And we can leverage the capital that TradFi is bringing in to bootstrap these products, or, or large holders are, are bringing in to bootstrap these products, make them profitable, and then level the playing field by then spending the capital to sort of share the level of analysis that. Brings it down to literally, here's the information you need. Execute against that, right? And then extrapolating that a little bit further out. Imagine now being able to automate that, where I don't even have to worry about, well, should I have a 50, 50, 70, 20, 80, 20? Perhaps algorithmically you can just do that automate in an automated way, right? That's possible, right? But I think the, the things that would have to be built to get there. But ultimately, that's the goal, right? The goal is to, like, give and empower, right, users and give them the ability to sort of have the information they need um, to make the best decisions. And even if they don't necessarily know how to, to make those decisions independently, like, just give them the tools to just, you know, make it a lot easier to do. Our, um, based off of that, are you guys planning to do any type of, like, price forecasting and things like that with the data or kind of predict ahead of time what type of um, breakdown someone should have in the, in the future. That's not, that's not currently in the roadmap. Um, I think it's potentially a place we could end up, but like it's still early to the point where there's still a lot of like just initial product to launch. And we think that at least in the short term, like there are players in the market that do that already and can do that. So that's not really the short-term focus. The short-term focus is actually getting these products out there, making them successful, like building up TVL, right? Making them, you know, reliable and do what they say and we think they will do through various market conditions, 
like learn ourselves like what we see right because i mean every product is a little bit of an experiment right it's kind of a theory you think it will work and when i work like you think you might have to make adjustments so a lot of it too is there's a lot for us to learn actually in how the products actually are going to be used if and how they work um and then leverage that to just build and iterate on you know improving those products or creating better products um, and at some point, right, if you've been successful and you have this very, very broad marketplace with all sorts of products, people have the ability to hedge their positions, buy insurance, right? We've integrated with all the best in breed. Maybe then at that point, you're like, all right, maybe the next point is now, right? Leveraging and creating analysis that is high value that you can sell or, you know, creating analysis that makes it easier for the, like, you know, I don't know, millionth user to come in and just simply have, you know, easy things to do. Like perhaps it's, you know, rather than do that ourselves, it's integrating with a third-party distribution platform. So imagine now saying, look, you have asset managers effectively on Enzyme. Like maybe it makes more sense for us just to integrate with them, right? Not just Bond, but all our products where now you have, quote-unquote, like, you know, experts, right, who are now constructing portfolios where perhaps a user now just goes to Enzyme and says, okay, I can scan all these portfolio managers, right, some are doing fixed income, leveraging bondage products, right, and, you know, I look at the track record and I just put my capital into a pool there, right, that could be a path, right, so as the market evolves, like, I, I think it'll be more likely that, some of those ideas will be more around like partnerships where third parties leveraging that information and then going to build something else or a third party will partner with to sort of, you know, you know, leverage each other to kind of create an access point. So now perhaps it's now like it makes more sense to integrate with a third party who now sits on top of Bondbridge and then provides all those value added services. So like we don't have to worry about that. You know, they charge for the value that they're providing, but that capital trickles down into Bondbridge, essentially, and we're getting a cut and we're getting paid. Just like Aave, basically, or Compound today, any TVL that's created on Bondbridge that trickles down to their, their platforms, like, they're getting their fee because they're originating that exposure. So um, I think it'll be some combination of that, but... I think as of today, like, there's just a lot of space to keep iterating on product first. And, and that's probably, you know, something else we'll figure out down the line. Yeah, this is uh, extremely interesting. You know, somebody who doesn't necessarily come out of the uh, finance industry, I think this is, like, one of the more kind of, like, complex DeFi products that I've seen. Um, you know, like, the risk protocol derivatives and just having the bonds and having the layers within the bonds of like risk pools. Um, it's extremely interesting, but I do want to kind of switch gears here. Since you are taking over the DAO, I think you're the, per the perfect person to have on to talk about this. Could you kind of uh, talk about the DAO at a high level and like how does that work? Yeah, so I'm not taking over the DAO. Um, I am going to spend more of my time on the DAO and building the structure there. So so going back, like the, the very first product Barnbridge launched was the DAO. Right, so it was yield farming, and the very first smart contract that was built, well, not the first smart contract, but the first what we call a product. Um, you know, the team also built the yield farming contracts that we use. But governance was first, right? And, you know, we, we always say within Barbridge, it's, you know, a governance first protocol. And, you know, 
bondage governance in terms of how it works, a lot of what we try to do was, you know, first of all, like it's, you know, it's built on a diamond standard, which allows you to basically change contracts over time. So you can essentially upgrade these contracts without people having to like, you know, like, like on protocols where a new version comes out, you got to pull all your capital out and put into a new version because of a new contract. Like on Barnbridge, like within governance, you wouldn't need to do that because um, it's built on what's called a diamond standard. So you can actually change certain features or dynamics or variables within an already established contract, right? So, and, and, and that design was deliberate because we wanted a way for a, a process where the DAO could basically essentially control every aspect of the protocol, like remotely and in the best way, right? So you could, as the, the procedures, for example, you have to stake bond tokens in the DAO to be able to put in proposals, to be able to vote, right? The voting system and the way it was designed, for example, you know, most on-chain DAO votes take at least 12 days. And the reason for that is there's like a three-day warm-up so that, you know, once a proposal is put in, it's three days that allows people who might not be staked to stake their tokens. After that, there's a four-day voting per period that's triggered all right after the four-day voting period there's another like i believe like a three-day cooldown which is essentially like um um it's like uh it's it's what we kind of put in in place of a guardian so we had this debate about you know there's some protocols that have what you call a guardian where a proposal can go through but some entity or group of people essentially have a veto power so if it, if it turns out that, okay, we think that proposal is bad for whatever reason, or it's nefarious, or right, maybe some entity gained the system and this is not a good idea. Um, some protocols have guardians where maybe a core team or a multi-sig has unilateral power to basically reverse that vote. And what we did instead in Barnbridge is we, we put in like another three-day delay before execution which essentially gives the DAO the ability to put in a counter proposal with a slightly higher threshold to cancel the previous proposal. Right. And, and that was a design choice we made because, you know, the view was that, you know, no, no third party or group of people should be able to veto the will of the DAO. Like only the DAO can kind of change its mind. And so that's built into the design for how proposals go through. Right. Um, and then, so I think all, all together, it's like a 12 day period. So, I mean, it's, it's longish in a way, but like it was deliberately done to say that, you know, DAO first or empowering the DAO was really sort of like the long-term view that everything will evolve into the DAO controlling every aspect of the protocol and having all the tools to do that. Right. So, you know, so to some extent, right. Yield farming, when we launch yield farming, like we had to do that in such a way where there was enough distribution that was wide enough to then create, you know, the wallets that could then enter the DAO, you know, basically trigger it. So the launching the DAO was done by a vote. <laughs> like the very first, the whole process for actually launching the DAO technically was launched and triggered by the DAO itself, not the core team. Right? And that was also deliberately done to some extent to say, look, like no singular entity or individual actually launched this protocol. It was done by the will of this decentralized network, right? So there, so there are a number of all these design choices that went into that. Now we still sort of, to a large extent, 
the core team is still the nexus of where most of the development in Barnbridge happens, right? Because DAOs take time to build out, right? And we spend some time trying to now start building out, like, you know, we launched an integration team, for example, that is basically funded by the DAO, you know, will be funded through a multi-sig, have some ability or some, um, the idea was to create a structure where these teams could be stood up and they have some ability to be semi-autonomous, where the DAO can basically fund the activities, but they have a lot of autonomy within a range of requirements to do what they're supposed to do without having to be micromanaged, right? But with enough supervision or, or, or reporting such that the DAO still know what's, knows what's going on and can kind of say, okay, you know, this team is doing what it's doing. We can see the outputs, right? The execution is great. Or we can recall that team saying they're not doing anything, right? But you, you, it's like you have to figure out what, what's the compromise between oversight, autonomy, efficiency, like all these things. And so to a large extent, we're still experimenting around these things, right? And so to, so there's still this idea that having the core team have some ability to fund itself through its own multi-sig and have a runway is important because it'll take time to build these structures within the DAO. Um, but so for me and my, you know, what of kind of, I guess, a self-term role, I think that there's a lot of scope to accelerate the development within the DAO, right? And empowering the DAO because, you know, part of the challenge is it's one thing to have the mechanisms and the power potentially for the DAO to be operational and kind of take the reins, but it's a whole other thing for that to happen. And so you need leadership too on the DAO side, on the community side to say, well, these are things we can be doing now. Like these are things we should be sort of like pushing forward because uh, as human beings naturally, like even with the best intentions, most people don't willingly devolve power, right? If, if I have control and I'm doing something, it doesn't occur to me when I wake up tomorrow that I want to give power away <laughs> unilaterally. Right. So my mind isn't thinking about, well, we could do this today and kind of give away power next week. I could do this now. You might need the other side to say, well, now is the time to, to start pushing on certain things that might not be occurring to the team. So empowering and creating a structure within the DAO to now start effecting, right, and practicalizing those things, right, it almost becomes bootstrapping that. So you need people putting out proposals that says we should do this, we should do that. You need people like incentivized to drive this within the community and potentially like, you know, it becomes like a, a way to set examples where you have someone on people who are incentivized or who are stoking these ideas and it creates this flywheel where other people now say, well, I could do that too. I could do that too. Right. It creates this sort of, you know, um, in my view, like, uh, what's the word you, you have to also like deliberately do that and, and have people within the community that, either driven or incentivized to do that, or many things wouldn't naturally happen unless the core team now says, hey, want to do this today. And I don't think that's how we get to the long-term vision um, of the protocol um, without having, you know, that sort of impetus on the DAO side kind of saying, okay, now's the time. And, 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 you know, people organizing, right, the DAO directionally into, into that future. Hundred um, percent. Akin, I think it would also be interesting for the audience to learn about the bond token versus the V bond token, um, and kind of understand how those play into the protocol. Oh yeah. So, 
So the bond token is, you know, it's a bond governance token, right? The 10 million bond tokens that will ever be in existence. Um, most of the bond tokens or the largest pool of bond tokens still sit in the treasury. So I think it's like 30, 36%, something between 34 and 36% today. So that's still the largest mass of, of tokens. Some tokens sit, sit in the multi-sig for the core team. And then everything else is, you know, distributed in people's accounts, wherever they might be spread around the place. Um, so when, when you have to participate in the bond bridge down, the first thing you have to do is acquire bond tokens, and then you have to stake them into the DAO. Now we incentivized the, the DAO by creating DAO rewards where when you stake your bond tokens today, you're earning more bond. So it's essentially like an incentive system to encourage people to enter the DAO in the first place because, well, I can earn more bond and increase my stack. And now that I'm in the DAO, well, I have the bond to now participate, right? So I can participate in votes. I can put up proposals, a whole mechanisms for that. When you enter the DAO, what the DAO does is creates V bond. So when you stake your bond into the DAO, you get V bond, which is voting bond tokens. Right, so if I had 10,000 bond tokens and I just stake them in, I can get V-Bond. But as a secondary mechanism in the DAO where you can lock your tokens for you know, varying lengths of time. So if I lock my 10,000 bond tokens today for a year, and you know, it's a decision you have to think about seriously because once you lock your bond tokens for a year, the contract is not going to release those bonds for a year and nothing can be done. Like there's no mechanism to like unfurl your bond or give you a bond before that clock is over. So you can lock it in for two months, three months, however long you want, up to a year. Now, all that does is it gives you a multiplier of V-Bond, where if you locked that 10,000 V-Bond for a year, you get a 2x multiplier. So your voting power is basically doubled. So you now have 20,000 V-Bond, which gives you like double the voting power relative to someone who didn't lock in. And so all that does is it basically says people who are willing to lock their bond token for a period of time are a lot more aligned, right? If I lock my bond, bond tokens for a year, then I'm really aligned with all the decisions this DAO makes over that long period of a year. Because if they're bad decisions and it affects the bond token, I suffer and there's nothing I can do. If they're great decisions, <laughs> then great for me. So it kind of is an incentive system in a way to you know, incentivize people who want more agency and more power to influence votes to say you can get that, but it means you're locking your tokens and you're also thereby living with the decisions you make for like at least a defined period of time. So that lock-in multiplier kind of like, you know, goes up to basically 2x, right, for a year. And then, you know, if it's six months, it's 0.5, it's, it's you know, it kind of deteriorates. And over time, like as, as the clock starts running down, like your multiplier like deteriorates. So it goes from like a 2X, you know, if you're locked for 12 months by month eight, it's like, you know, 1.75, like it kind of decays over time. But you can always go back in, add more bond and start the clock again if you wanted to. So you can extend it every time you'll, you know, add more bond into the, into the lock potentially. You, you had kind of touched on the uh, proposal process a little bit. Is there kind of like a certain threshold of bond tokens that you need? Yeah, you need one. Yeah, so you need you need you need one percent 
of of the voting power in, that's taken the Dow to put in a proposal. So you basically need one percent of um, you need one percent of the bond actually in the Dow, not the V bond. The voting power is basically slightly separate. So to to get a proposal in, you need to have at least one percent of bond to do that. You know, part of the reason for that was clearly not to have just spam proposals where the threshold is anyone can propose anything. Um, but the, the other idea behind that too is that you don't have to have one percent of the bond token. So there's a delegating system where anyone can delegate their V bond to you. Right. So let's say, for example, I have very little bond, but I have this really great idea. And I, you know, talk to a few people in the Dow, people are like, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. You know, 10 people can get together, like delegate all their bond to one party, aggregate enough bond to put in a proposal. Or say, you know, a whale in the community that you think or know has 1% of the bond token. Well, convince them of this idea and they can put in a proposal on your behalf. Right? You can talk to the core team and say, I have this really great idea. You go through the process. Maybe someone on the core team of the multi-sig itself enacts a proposal on your behalf. So, I mean, I think that was just put in there. So there's at least some sort of threshold. So it's not just, you know, you know, at least it's, it's, it's material things that kind of come up to that. Um, but there's a process whereby even if you don't hold 1%, like you can get that. And I think that threshold is relatively low at this point where any proposal these days that have real merit, that kind of come to the community, you know, we, we kind of created like a, like a, there's kind of like a little step before actually things go to on-chain votes. We also have a snapshot system where we use it as like an indication. So we typically would, if there's an idea, for example, you'll probably like post it in the Boundbridge forum first. Look, we should do X, Y, Z as a debate around it. Um, maybe some of the parameters of the idea kind of shift. So I'll give an example. Like, so, you know, we, we got whitelisted on Bancor and I pushed for, um, you know, the, the treasury seeding that Bancor pool, right? We had some internal discussions and we decided to seed, you know, the single side of the Bancor pool with 25,000 bond tokens, um, which is what, uh, at the time was like a million dollars. It's less today after like, the bloodbath last couple of weeks. But so, and we pulled the community, like went back and forth and like, we got a lot of feedback in the community that said, well, that bond is sitting in the treasury, like why 25K, why not 50? And literally the community was like, put more. And so when the act, so after that process indication went through and the actual proposal, which is now going through, well, actually I think it's just past our voting. So we have a couple of proposals going through, um, um, voting currently that I think have met quorum and one of, and one of the line items of that proposal was to fund fund the banker pool. And we changed the parameters to 50,000 because there was a huge amount of people that said put 50,000 bond instead of 25 because it's single sided, right? There's no IL loss. If we get like, you know, rewards on that, then that's just cash flow returning to, um, to the Dow. And we're also like, you know, liquefying another pool that creates more liquidity in bond tokens, right? So it's kind of like a no brainer for the community. And so that's an example of kind of the process, right? It's like part of the idea is everything lands in the community first. We can kind of iterate around it, right? There's some indication of yay, nay. Most of the times through discussion, you get to consensus. 
and we haven't really had a contentious vote, in my view, on, on, the, on the snapshot yet. So the idea is by the time these votes actually come into the on-chain vote, you kind of already know what the sentiment is. There's already general agreement around it. So like the likelihood is that every line item is like already pretty much been pre-approved and the on-chain vote is a little more of a formality at that point. Got it. That's really, really cool. Um, Chase, do you have any other questions around that particular topic? No, that was, uh, that was extremely thorough. I appreciate you like walking us through that. Um, I was just, it's just such a fascinating industry and just to have like a community vote come together and they're just like, no, like add more, it's it's single, you know, single side liquidity. You're not going to lose any money. And it's just like a money printer for the community fund. It's just like, it's such a fascinating concept and just like um, time we live in right now. Yeah, and the other thing, so the one thing I'll add to that too, I think it's a, it's an important, it's a non-trivial view because I think it's something we'll see begin to evolve in the space is when, when we were pushing to whitelist on Bancor, it was a pretty interesting process because we realized relatively quickly uh, to some extent, like, so like when we put it to whitelist, I think there were like a handful of other products are also trying to whitelist and every product other than Barnbridge that passed and met quorum was voted on by a couple of will wallets that were owned by like a VC fund. I will not name in the space. And we realized really relatively quickly that they were not going to vote on our proposal. Um, because our, profo- our proposal was actually like, well, above the threshold for passing in terms of the percentage, but we hadn't met quorum because there were just not enough votes. So they're basically were abstaining. If they voted no for us, would have passed because we would have met quorum and met the threshold. But we realized at some point that, okay, they weren't going to vote on our proposal. They're abstaining, which is basically trying to block it. And so, you know, we went on this, you know, kind of door-to-door campaign is the best way I'll kind of say it to basically appeal to the barn, you know, the Bancor community with a lot of help from the Bancor team. Like they were very, very helpful. They kind of showed us into hidden rooms in the space and all sorts of stakeholders. It was pretty interesting, like I'd say 48 hours for me. Um, but, you know, I, I, I don't think I've said this publicly yet, but I would say that I think the, probably the single sole reason we got passed was because of the Chainlink community. Right, because we appeal to a lot of chain link holders who are some of the largest LPs in, in Bancor. And you know, you know, I was you know, I've been part of Chainlink or the Chainlink community pre-mainnet. So I actually knew a lot of people. I know Chainlink God fairly well. Right. And and so having that sort of, you know, reputation within the community was helpful because all of a sudden it's like you walk into a room and it's like, Oh yeah, I know you, right? Yeah, we talked about XYZ, right? And so it becomes this sort of qualifying process of, all right, you guys are good. Like, yeah, when I get home, I'm going to vote for your proposal. And we met quorum. Quorum on, on Banco was 40%. And, you know, they ended up, we ended up getting 40.23%. We barely crossed the line, like literally at the last minute. And so part of, I sell that to say that part of the learning was that, you know, if, if we have a Barnbridge see like a protocol like Bancor as a long-term partner, potentially, then it behooves us to acquire voting power on Bancor. 
because we need to have the ability to one align ourselves with the community financially, which is a strong signal, but also have the power to actually vote in our favor on the proposals we want to pass through, right? And not have that ever repeat itself. And if you extrapolate that out to potentially other protocols, then there's going to be a future in DeFi, in my view, where it will behoove products to be financially aligned with the protocols, particularly like protocols that have decentralized governance that's accessible, right? Aligned so that they have agency within those protocols, so that they're, so that they're prioritized within their protocols. If I go to if I go to Bancor and say, look, we have a couple million dollars in a Bancor pool that we're seeding as a DAO, like that's our capital we're lodging there that we can pull out if. Right, you know, it's like, look, we're we're, we're helping the network to help us on the other side. To me, that's a very that's a fairly strong argument and way to appeal to the community to kind of vote on you on, on certain things. And so, if you extrapolate that out down the road, right, and you and you're thinking about particularly like protocols like Barnbridge, where we think there's going to be a lot of partnership required to make us successful, then it will behoove us to actually spread our capital. Right in protocols where we can actually have governance power as well and affect the decisions that we want that are in our best interest. So this now becomes a salvo into politics, right? And it becomes, you know, it is everything is politics at the end of the day. So that now becomes a new dimension that now we actively have to think about when you're you're not just deploying capital into Bancor to, to fund a single-sided pool, and that's all great to create liquidity for bond tokens. That that's great too. Like I want governance power on Bancor because I have we had an experience where literally, right, potentially a strategic relationship was either going to be stalled, slowed down, or not happen because you know third party for whatever reason doesn't like us or whatever it might be. So things like that I think are becoming beginning to emerge and becoming like. You know, I think there've always been dimensions of what's been at play, but I think they'll become more and more emergent and visible as, as time goes on. Absolutely. Um, you know, life is a, a game of chess, if you will. You know, there's always moves being made. So kind of like going off that, like what are the chess moves in the future for Bonford? Like what is the uh, kind of like next three to five years of like for you guys? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, this is, this is my own personal opinion. Um, I think that, and it's basically what I said to a large extent, what I've been trying to say for the last half hour. I think it's really about creating great products that you think there's a market for. It's about bridging DeFi and traditional finance, right? Both from, you know, in terms of getting more traditional capital into DeFi, but also creating a space where, you know, you're not compromising the ethos of everyone gets to participate, right? So the little guy in DeFi has just as much opportunity to intelligently enter and manage their financial assets as a sophisticated Wall Street entity, right? And doing that in a deliberate way is important, right? So, right, building the tools that helps the little guy understand how to use your protocol, and not just building something that's good for the traditional finance guys, I think philosophically is important um, because you want to basically, in my view, you want to kind of leverage the power of the TradFi guys to make the markets more even. That's the way I kind of see it. Like sell a proposition to TradFi guys, make profits off of them, use those profits to like level the playing field. 
right? So that, that's, that's kind of, I think, I think if we're successful, we need to be successful doing that. I think as well, it's also partnerships, right? It's, you know, partnering and making decisions in terms of who you partner, who you pr- partner with and who you prioritize. You know, I firmly believe you should look at some of the leading protocols in DeFi today that have made inroads into traditional finance. Like, you don't have to dig deep to see who they are. And the question you need to ask yourself is, okay, what's the appeal to traditional finance to them? What are the things they're doing that are attracting that capital? And what can you learn from them? And should you be spending more of your time and resources finding ways to, you know, partner with them, engage with them, build new things with them, leverage their intelligence and their dev team, leverage the modes they have. You know, I think, I think there'll be, there'll be need to be selective, right? And I think, you know, you, I don't know, I, I kind of see like there'll be there's almost two worlds that are emerging in DeFi where there's a, there's, a, there's a philosophy where you just build things and build things and partner with whoever you can, which I don't think is prudent. And to me, it makes it look like so, some protocols don't have a strategic direction. Like everyone can be your partner. Everyone is not necessarily the right partner. So if you're doing business with everyone and like integrating everything, it's like, kind of, okay, what's the, what's the strategic direction? I think on the other side, you know, you see some more deliberate protocols that are being, you know, I don't know, maybe more discerning or very, very particular. And I think that's kind of where, in my view, Barnbridge, the spectrum Barnbridge should sit, where it's like you have a vision, you know what that vision is, then you try to align with other people that have that vision and prioritize them. Um, you know, and it, some some partners don't make sense for lots of reasons. Ultimately, to me, it goes back to who are your customers and users and what do they want. And if a customer, you know, if, if you're on customer calls and they, they kind of say, well, these are the kinds of protocols we, we are in today, these are the kind of things we want to see. These are the kind of assets we'll never touch. Well, I'm not going to build and integrate an asset that large sorts of my customers are saying they don't want to touch for all sorts of risk reasons, right? I'm going to go with the guys that they say, yeah, those guys are good. Look, look like them and we'll, we'll come use you. So, I mean, I think, you know, from at least a, from that position, I think that's what the three, next three to five years should be. I think ultimately, too, at some point it goes from, you know, building our own suite of products and our own vision and then aligning with others, right? So like I said, to some extent earlier on, I think we'll need to figure out things like hedging products, other financial products that allow users on Barnbridge to better manage their exposures. And, and I don't think we're going to build everything, right? I think some of it comes with making smart integrations. You know, you have to think about insurance if it's something users want, you know, and then watch that space and kind of figure out what kind of insurance products do you provide on the on the product side, which is be more like structured hedging products, and then on the smart contract risk side, you know, potentially, you know, smart contract insurance could be an area we'll look at. Um, but yeah, so that, that's kind of high seed for now. And then I think the, the other leg and something we didn't speak too much about is, well, we kind of spoke to, but not in this level of detail, is that, you know, just like TradFi has on-ramps or, or retail has on-ramps, and we, there's, a, there's, a, there's a period in, in crypto when we talked about on-ramps and like, oh, there are not enough on-ramps for like retail to come in. Like that's the exact same thing we're seeing in traditional finance today. Like the money is ready, but all the on-ramps are unbuilt. 
right? And as these on-ramps are getting built into TradFi, like whoever can kind of sell a compelling story to these on-ramps as to why you should have Barbridge integrated on your interface and platform relative to every, everyone else, whoever can kind of set a beachhead there has a massive advantage, right? Because you become a brand that is just on the platform these guys use. And, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll use what they see because they're, they're expecting these on-ramps and platforms to have some level of curation in some avenues, right? So, like, I mean, today you have platforms like Fireblocks or Copper where it provides some level of, of protection, right, for, like, I'd say venture fund types, high net worths, like smaller asset managers, right? You can lodge your capital there, right? You know, Fireblocks has a fork of MetaMask. Right. They have multi-party competition that kind of secures their network and has all these security layers that TradFi guys like to see, but then they can go play in DeFi the way they want. That's just giving people access to a platform that's more secure. But then there are on-ramps coming that are now more thinking about not just the platform, but the curation. So if you're, so if you're a registered investment advisor, for example, actually on-ramp um, is a company that just launched today, and they're building a platform that is basically a platform as a service for RIAs to be able to access crypto. So now every RIA in the United States and Europe, right, potentially can now integrate into a platform and then offer their people or their, you know, their LPs, Bitcoin, Ethereum, and whatever assets that this platform provides. But you can imagine that you know it's built by RIA, so what they're also kind of providing to you is like a, an advisory layer. So it's not just, well, oh, here's product, and I'm a DGEN fund, I don't need your advice, I'm the advice, just give me access, that's Fireblocks. But like on-ramp is, well, here's the platform, but there are a lot of things you need to know. And this is why you should right, have access to this, this token or not. Here are the risks. Here are all these things that RIAs need to know so they can now tell their users and their LPs. So the LPs now have at least some sense of, all right, here's my risk profile. And so here's directionally where I want my capital to be. And here's now where, where I don't want it to be, right? So as these platforms like that, for example, start getting built out, it now becomes important to say, well, what's the fixed income protocol that sits on on-ramps, right? Is it going to be Bombridge? Is it going to be whomever else, right? So. That's the other part of the vision I think becomes really important where you now want to spend time today courting those platforms that you might not even be on for another year, but you're building that relationship. You're trying to understand the market. You're trying to understand what the apprehensions are. You're trying to spend resources educating them, potentially supporting education on their platforms so they can distribute that insight to their users. And that level of insight and education and understanding gets associated with your brand. So when the users are ready to use the platform, oh, I already know Barnbridge. I already know what they do. I know their products. Uh, spoken, we've spoken to other guys, like they're familiar. Right? And, and, and in traditional finance, that oftentimes takes a lot of time. And the sales cycle is long because it takes time for people to build trust, right? whether people like it or not. And I think that's one thing that, from what I've seen, you know, within DeFi, there's a lot of impatience. It's kind of like, I want it today, I want it today. And people don't often realize that, well, there's a whole, like, the sum total of capital that exists in the world still sits in TradFi. 
if you want that money, you sort of have to play by how they're comfortable. And so that's the other side that I think becomes really, really important over the next three to five years. As these RMs get built, as they get more sophisticated, like what choices are they going to make and who do they want to integrate? And whoever is successful at articulating and, and working that space, right, has the opportunity to become the runaway um, DeFi protocols of the future because that's what those users are going to subscribe to. No, 100%. 100%. I really liked your points on like just aligning with companies that also have like the same vision as you do. I think that that's extremely important for like the overall ecosystem and the health. And um, I also really appreciated your touch point earlier on on Chainlink. I thought that that was interesting um, how they were kind of acting as like um, the bridge, right? To kind of unite unite different uh, parties together. Um, and they're, they're currently doing that now, right, from, like, a protocol level. But it's really cool to hear, to hear um, that they're also doing that, you know, uh, in person or, you know, virtually uh, connecting teams and, and groups and helping move move that vision forward. Yeah, for sure. Um, the power of Link Marines cannot be understated. Um, <laughs> you got a lot of them <laughs> <laughs> you, you got a lot of Link Marines here in the chat. They're like head nodding, like, yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Um, if anyone in the audience has questions for Akin, you can just request. Um, we do have a little bit of time. So if anyone does have questions that you want to ask Akin, Akin directly, um, feel free to request. Yeah, do while we're uh, while we're waiting for that, I can add a, add a question. I like theoretical kind of conceptual perspective of what this may look like in the future. So like, say I had a retirement account or let's say like, um, I have an investment account or like a retirement account, whatever it may be through like fidelity or some other larger institution. Will it kind of be potentially in a future to where it's like, there will be an API through my login credential with that service. I will be able to interact or like place funds into Barnbridge protocol, like through their API. Like that would be directly connected to you, to, to you guys. Yes. So, I mean, that's the way, so, I mean, that's the way it already is today. Not well, not with Barnbridge. We're still early, but if you look at, you know, Stani has said this a few times, uh, Stani has said, you know, seven, over 70% of all the TVL on Aave interacts with Aave at the smart contract level, not through the front end. And so if someone is pinging that smart contract directly, right, it's not some DGEN that's built their own stack, right? It's, it's more likely a fund, a trading firm, some sort of sophisticated entity that says, I don't even want front end risk. All I want is a smart contract. I want to build and integrate against it. And I want to call that contract to launch my capital. And I want to do that potentially in some sort of some sort of form of anonymity, anonymity, right? Where no one even knows that I'm operating on the contract because I've, I've figured out some way to kind of obfuscate my identity, right? Seventy percent of Aave is coming through smart contracts, which basically tells me it's mostly, you know, some sort of tradfi, right? And so whoever the tradfi entities are are offering access, right, to Aave yields through whatever their proprietary system is today, 
And that's going to remain the case and might even grow over time. So if that's the mode of operation today, then the simple answer is if Bombers is going to be successful attracting that user, you know, one way or the other, that's the way we're going to access them. Either them basically doing the same with us and interacting directly with us, or perhaps, <laughs> you know, we are finding deeper ways to partner with Ave or Compound or these guys and saying, well, you guys have those relationships, like, perhaps we can offer that access through you, right? So those are questions that are outstanding. But I think the short answer is, you know, I think the future is going to be, I don't think you're going to have a mass migration of people from the current platforms they use. I think those platforms are going to build integrations to service their customers so they don't lose that customer. And you have to understand, like, the core thing that binds, like I said, a customer to a platform is years of trusting relationship. And in many ways, too, like, it's more complex than... So, like, I was telling someone today, like, you know, the average person can just say, like, I'm going to go on Coinbase, move money from my bank account, and go buy crypto. Like, whatever. I don't really care about my bank that much. Like, high net worth individuals, financial institutions... The nature of the relationships those people have are more complicated because, for example, a company, for example, that has a treasury management with a bank or some third-party institution, right? That relationship is probably not just managing treasury for them, but it's giving them overdrafts and, and short-term lending, right? They are investment bankers that are going to raise capital for you when you want to, right, issue more shares, Right? It's, a, it's a whole stack of relationships that's not just about crypto. It's like, I'm not going to leave that deep relationship to offboard some capital right, to go to some third party to get crypto. No, I'm going to knock on the door of my relationship and say, you guys better integrate crypto relatively quickly because we want exposure. I'm willing to give you some time and wait. And if enough of those customers are knocking down the door, then you're sure those guys are going to be like, we don't want to lose our customers, we're going to do that. So that's the way I kind of see it more happening, where all these traditional entities are now figure out ways to basically provide access, right? Some of the scrappy, smaller players, hedge fund types, they'll build their integrations, right? You'll have players that build new platforms that are like regular platforms that do all the like legwork and then provide like, this platform and interface to the user. So if it's like on ramps, like I mentioned before, it's like, well, we're RIAs. We're going to give you a platform you're familiar with. So we're going to build out everything you need, the bells and whistles, create account, create sub accounts for all your users, right? Create portfolio allocation. Here's analysis tools. Like that's what RIAs are used to having today. Like, so you're going to have to build that for them. And they're like, oh, okay, this is cool. This is just like how we manage real estate, how we manage um, you know, stock exposure, like now it's crypto and now I have all the tools, decision-making tools to do that, right? So someone is going to build that and plug it in. And the guy whose services, you know, the guy who's had his $20 million fortune with the same investment advisor for 15 years, he's not going to leave. He's just going to be like, hooray, now I have crypto. Great. Where'd I put it? What part, of, what part of the portfolio should I put to crypto? Because remember, he's still relying on his RIA for advice. Do I put 5%, 10%, 15%? Do I buy Bitcoin or ETH? Like, like, I don't know. Like, tell me what to do. So those relationships are very sticky. And I think they'll remain that way for the vast majority of people, right? There'll be some attrition at the margin. But like the 
base core of that capital, that current system, financial system is not just going to leave. It's just going to like evolve. Awesome. I see we have a guest guest on. You want to go ahead and ask Crypto? Yeah. um, Name's Maverick. First time um, talking. I've been listening to Base probably 10, 12 times now. Super thrilled with what you guys talk about. uh, Educational. And I want to say uh, Akin uh, Bond is my number two position behind uh, Bitcoin and, in fact, ahead of Link now uh, after I aped in more uh, yesterday so that I could vote on the Bancor proposal and uh help it reach quorum big banker fan and uh have that's where all my link is staked uh and maker and uh obviously so just you know uh left the stock market a year ago uh pulled it all out after GameStop and and just you know could be more thrilled with crypto and then and, and i love listening to base and 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 uh Barnbridge and bond are, are definitely a big part of my portfolio i just want to let you know i I aped in for that quorum, so uh, thanks for all you guys do, and uh, I'll, I'll turn off my mic. Yeah, thanks, man. Thanks for thanks for crossing up. I think we crossed quorum today, so uh, on those votes, we have a forty percent quorum on um, Barnbridge votes um, in terms of so it's forty percent of those staked into the DAO. So it's it's not I don't think it's a it's ridiculously high threshold, but it's 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 material. So thanks for the vote. Every vote sort of helps. Thank you for that, uh, Maverick. Yeah, thank you for that, Bitcoin Profit. We appreciate you coming on and being an active listener of the base space. It's awesome, man. Um, yeah, honestly, I can you answered the, all of the questions that I personally have. Super high, Chase, Connor, are there any um, outstanding questions while, while I can still hear? I think you kind of covered it all. It was very thorough, like Chase said earlier. Um, it's super exciting to see, like you said, you came from growing up in, in Africa, and now you're building <laughs> the next financial system. Like, it's that's really inspiring. Yeah, kind of just second that, kind of more or less just speechless and absorbing all of it, uh, just trying to get as much in as I can. No more questions for me tonight. Hell yeah. Um, Atkin, we do record these sessions. Are you okay with us posting this on our YouTube? Yeah, no problem. Hell yeah. Um, well, I think, I think I'm going to close it out here, guys. Really, really appreciate Atkin you know, just taking the time out um, and coming on the base space, supporting, supporting the group. Um, super high, Chase, Connor. Thanks for everything that you guys do behind the scenes, and just wanted to thank all the listeners for tuning in and uh, really uh, representing the base space um, and, and continually coming on. Um, Acting, it was a really big pleasure. I'm sure we'll be in touch, and of course, like definitely want to stay up to date with everything you're doing. Um, and I could definitely see you coming back on in the future. Um, would love to hear hear more from you, and I think. You have a lot of good insight on the industry. You have a really, really strong vision of where you see everything going. Um, and, of course, I think everyone else agrees. Like, your backstory is really inspirational, and um, you have a really different perspective uh, from, you know, myself in the U.S. Um, and uh, really, really appreciate just you, you breaking that down for us and talking about your entire backstory and how you got into crypto. Yeah, I also, I just want to echo that and first say, again, I really do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, I know it's kind of late, um, taking time to speak with us. 
this conversation was like an incredibly um, insightful, kind of inspiring as well to hear your story. Uh, I definitely look forward to following your journey in this industry as well as Barnbridge. Um, so I really do appreciate it. Thanks plus for uh, being extremely based. Yeah, plus one. Thank you, Ed. Thanks for having me, guys. This was fun. Hell uh, yeah. We'll close it out. Thanks, everyone. See you guys tomorrow. Peace. Good night. Peace. Good night, guys. Good night.